All right, today being Easter, being what it is, a, a resurrection celebration, uh, we're going to do things a little bit different, a little unorthodox for us this week. And we're going to break up our sermon this week into three different parts. And so this is part one. And as we think about Easter, as we think about the resurrection, um, we recognize that this morning is significant. It's the most significant Sunday in all the world for Christianity. This is the one Sunday when regardless of background, regardless of tradition, we all unite and we proclaim the same message. We proclaim a risen Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. We, we proclaim a risen Jesus. That proclamation is a proclamation of life. And that, that proclamation has changed the course of human history for over 2,000 years, or nearly 2,000 years. But before we can proclaim the power of life, we first need to understand and remember just who Jesus is and why we so desperately need him. Do you desperately need Jesus, church? Amen. Yes, you do. And so if you were not with us last week or you need a quick refresher, uh, we discussed the significance of Palm Sunday. We discussed precisely what was going on as Jesus entered into Jerusalem to begin his final week of life. And you'll remember that as Jesus left the city of Jericho and he was on the 16 or 17 mile journey uh, to the city of Jerusalem, Jesus suddenly hit the pause button. He was walking and suddenly he stopped and he sent two of his disciples into Jerusalem to fetch a donkey and to bring it back. And it wasn't because Jesus couldn't walk the rest of the way. Jesus was making a statement about himself that originated with prophecy made over 500 years earlier by the prophet Zechariah. That Zechariah, in speaking for God, shared a message of hope with the people of Israel. That one day a new king would come and he would lead them. And this king would be like no king that they had ever experienced before. That where other kings were held in high esteem and whose power was the envy of the people. This new king was going to be different. This new king would come to them lowly. This new king would come to them riding on a donkey. This new king would reject the ways of war and instead be a proclaimer of peace. And for 500 years, the people of Israel were subject to kingdom after kingdom, king after king, first with Babylon, then with Persia, then with Greece, then with Rome. For 500 years, the people held tightly to the words of Zechariah. For 500 years, they looked for a king who would come riding on a donkey. And now this Jesus was playing his hand. He was revealing his cards. He was staking his claim to the throne of Israel. And the people were elated. And they ran to welcome him. And they threw their cloaks on the ground. And they threw palm branches on the ground. And they shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna, which means save now, save please, save us. And their cry for help could be heard throughout Jerusalem. Uh, the, the, that the impact that Jesus was making as he entered the gates of the city was, was phenomenal, was huge. That there was a new king in town. And all of that sounds great in theory. <clears throat> but if you can imagine how you, you might react if someone suddenly showed up at your workplace and tried to claim your position as their own, or showed up at your door and tried to claim your house as their own, uh, you might be able to recognize that just because someone places a claim on a throne doesn't mean that he's going to be welcomed with open arms. That Jesus' claim to the throne as King of Israel 
was not about title. It was not about place of honor. As you'll remember, he was always supposed to be a different kind of king. But the assertion of one's place as king is always very much an assertion of authority. Being a king always comes with an expectation that you have authority. And so as Jesus rode into the city on the back of a donkey, he was saying something loud and clear without actually having to open his mouth and say anything at all yet. But soon his words would be crystal clear in the hours and days that followed. And so beginning in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12, Jesus begins a series of displays of his kingly authority. As he begins to come into Jerusalem, he begins to show and reveal himself to people. And he shows the authority that only a king has. First, he does it in action. The very first thing we're told Jesus did was approach the money changers uh, at the table. These were people who were corrupt. These were people who were taking animals that were being brought to the temple for sacrifice and telling people, your animals are not good enough. Here, let us sell you this one. And then they were taking those animals that were not good enough and selling them to other people who would come later. They were corrupt. And so Jesus took their tables and he overturned their tables and he called them robbers. Next, Jesus' authority was challenged. This is the second display of King's authority. That when the chief priests and the leaders approached Jesus, they asked him where he got the authority to do what he's doing. Who told you you can go in and turn their tables over? And he tells them a series of of three parables, that each parable uh, claiming that many people who think they're invited to the kingdom of God have had their invitations revoked, that they have been rejected by God. Third, we see Jesus' authority or a king's authority recognized by the people, that as the religious leaders begin to question Jesus more, they try to trap him, they try to trick him with their questions, they ask him hard questions that no one can easily answer, and yet as the people look on, They hear the the, the answers that Jesus gives to these difficult questions. And we're told over and over again that the people were amazed, that the people were astonished, and that the critics of Jesus were silenced. Next, we see a king's authority in cursing enemies, something only a king can do. Because next, Jesus turns his attention to the crowds of people. And he tells them to never live lives like these religious leaders. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides. He calls them fools. He calls them snakes. He calls them brood of vipers. And then he calls them murderers. We see a king's authority in the way that he predicts the future. That Jesus begins to paint a picture of what's to come. Of what to expect in the days and months and years that lie ahead. Before he concludes his thoughts in the city. And last, we see a king's authority in the final judgment where Jesus finishes by returning to the power of story. He tells some more parables, and he reminds the people to live in a state of constant readiness for the end and to use the gifts that God has given each of us or each of them before reminding them that some are going to be sent away to eternal punishment and that some, that that word some, I think is reserved for a specific group of people. We're talking about the chief priests, we're talking about the elders, and we're talking about the religious authorities. And so what came next should come as no surprise to you if you imagine how you might feel to be so insulted. How would you feel if someone came into your home and called you a snake and called you a fool and called you a brood of viper and called you a murderer? How would you react? Well, their reaction shouldn't surprise us. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 3, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly. And to kill him. 
And as Matthew 26 draws to a close, we're invited to witness a scene. Because Jesus gathers with his 12 closest friends. He gathers with his 12 disciples, and we're told that he reclines at a table to share a meal with them. And it's not just any meal. It's the Passover meal. This is a time when the nation of Israel would gather, and they would remember what God had done for them. They would remember that once upon a time, they were slaves. They would remember that once upon a time, they were in captivity in in Egypt, and they needed to be delivered. And God came in 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 a way that only God can. And he delivered them from slavery. He delivered them from bondage. He delivered them from captivity. And he did so with the blood of a lamb. That he passed over, the angel of death passed over those who had the blood of the lamb over their door frames. And they were able to live. That was the meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples that night. And with Jesus as king, as, with Jesus claiming the throne as king, he was preparing once again God was preparing once again to free these people from slavery. Only this time it was a different kind of slavery. It was a more permanent kind of slavery. This time he was freeing them from the slavery of sin. And he took bread and he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. And then we're told that he took a cup and he gave thanks. And he said to his disciples, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And so in just a few moments, we're going to have the opportunity to join Christ and we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together. But I'd like you to take each of you to take a few moments wherever you are. Just close your eyes and bow your head. I want to spend some time meditating on God's word for a moment. And then I'm going to invite, after 60 60 seconds or so, one or two minutes, we're going to invite Michael to come up and lead us in, in the Lord's Supper. But I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about this question. How has my own sin made me need Jesus' forgiveness? How has my own sin made me need Jesus' forgiveness? And after a minute or two, we're thinking about that question. Michael can lead us in words supper. You know, as the last supper ended, Jesus took his disciples outside of the city to the Mount of Olives, to a uh, a garden called Gethsemane, and it's not quite what we think of today when we think of gardens. It probably looked more like an orchard than what we we typically picture. And and Jesus had it in mind to spend some time uh, in prayer there. And so he took Peter and James and John uh, with him as he went off to to pray. And we're told that he, he fell on his face to the ground before the Father and he prayed these words. Go back a slide for me. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And we're told that he left and he found those three men asleep and he scolded them and he woke them up and told them to keep watch. 
And he returned a second time to pray. And this time he said, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And for a lot of us, this language of this cup can often be lost. I mean, what what does Jesus mean when he says this? What could he possibly be saying? Why is he so concerned about a cup? And while the language is often lost on us, it wasn't lost on Jesus at all because he knew what the prophets had said long ago. And he knew the cup that he was getting ready to drink from. This wasn't just any cup, church. This was the cup of God's wrath spoken of in Jeremiah, spoken of in Isaiah, spoken of again in Revelation. It was a day of God's reckoning with the sinfulness of humanity with a fallen and broken world because you see a just God, a righteous God uh, is completely and wholly incompatible with the sinfulness of humanity. A just God requires a just response to evil. He requires justice and that justice was poured out in consequence. That justice was to be poured out in vengeance. That justice was to be poured out in the wrath of God. But here's the catch and it was a catch that Jesus knew all too well that the cup of God's wrath wasn't to be poured out on the guilty. It wasn't to be poured out on humanity. The cup of God's wrath and the weight of thousands of years of sin and lawlessness by the people was being prepared to be poured out in its fullness on one innocent man. His name was, help me out, Jesus. And so again, Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep, and Jesus woke them, and he told them to get up. And as they did, Judas, another one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his 12 disciples, approached. And he approached with a crowd of people armed with swords and with clubs. And he approached them with a kiss. But as you well know, it wasn't just any kiss. It was a a kiss of betrayal that was designed to turn Jesus over to the religious authorities. And so Jesus' words in that moment were chilling. It reminds me of the scene from Julius Caesar where he looks at Brutus and he says, et tu Brute. Jesus looks at Judas and he says, do what you came for, friend. Do what you came for. And so the crowd seizes Jesus, they arrest him, and they set into motion God's cup of wrath. Before the Jewish high court, or the Sanhedrin, as we call it, they demanded, they looked at Jesus and said, tell us if you are the Messiah. Tell us if you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so. But I say to you, I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And with those words, Jesus stood as a man condemned in their eyes, He is worthy of death, they said, for what he just said. And so they punched him, and they spit in his face, and they mocked him. And this was all on Thursday night. On Friday morning, the religious authorities schemed and conspired on how to destroy this man. And these were law abiders. These were consummate law abiders. They didn't break the law for anything. But they needed to figure out how to destroy this man. They needed to to find a way to eliminate this person without the stain of guilt, without the stain of murder on their own hands. 
And suddenly the light bulb went off. They had their aha moment. They knew how to go about doing it. So they bound Jesus and they let him off to go appeal to the Roman authorities. And their thinking is, hey, if Rome kills him, we don't have to. They realize if Rome does it, hey, the guilt is not on our hands at all. And so that morning as Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor over that region, the triumphal entry of Jesus coming in on a donkey came into full view and the accusations against Jesus came into full view because Pilate didn't know the weight of what he was getting ready to, to ask Jesus, but he asked the most significant question of that entire week. He said, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response to that telling question it's a little hard to understand in English because it was two words. In Greek, he literally said, you say, you say. And so various Bible translations have tried to translate those words in various ways. Some say you have said so, or it is as you say, or you say so, or thou sayest, or you have said it. Those are your words. I, I, all these different versions. But Jesus' words in that moment leave a lot to the imagination and a lot to interpretation. As most commentators believe that Jesus' answer is in the affirmative. It's his way of saying, yeah, I am the king of the Jews. And I'm not convinced that that's what he's saying because I almost want to read it like, hey, you tell me. You tell me. But I'm not the Greek scholar that most of those people are. Nevertheless, we already know the kind of statement that Jesus is making about himself because he made it when he climbed on the back of a donkey and he rode into Jerusalem. He made it with all those displays of king's authority that we talked about earlier on this morning. And so the religious authorities know he made it as well, which is why he stands before Pilate right now being accused of what he's being accused of. There is zero doubt in my mind that Jesus is staking his claim as the long prophesied king of Israel. And so Pilate looks at an innocent man, and guess what he sees? He sees no guilt. He sees innocence. And so he decided to release a man. And so to a crowd, he brings Jesus, and he brings another man. He, he presents them two options. He said, over here, guys, there's a guilty man. His name is Barabbas. I can release him to you. And over here is an innocent man named Jesus. What do you want me to do? Which of the two do you want me to release to you, he said. And they answered, Barabbas. What shall I do then with Jesus who's called the Messiah? And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. What did they shout, church? Crucify him. These are the same people who were yelling Hosanna just a few days earlier. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead of an uproar, or instead an uproar was starting, he took water he washed his hands in front of them and he addressed the crowd. He said to the crowd, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. And these people who worked so hard to not be guilty of anything looked at, at Pilate and said, his blood is on us and on our children. And so Jesus was flogged with a cat of nine tails, which is a, a kind of whip that would gouge and rip out flesh with each stroke. It was typically the custom that a person would be flogged to within one strike of death, barely clinging to life. And so the Roman soldiers took this mutilated body and they gave him a true king's welcome, placing a scarlet robe around him 
and on his head they gave him a king's crown made of flesh piercing thorns and a staff in his right hand and there they knelt before him and they mocked him and they said hail king of the jews hail king of the jews and as they uttered those words as true as they may be they spit on him they struck him and they hauled him away to crucify him and that day as they built a cross and secured his near lifeless body to it with nails through his hands and nails through his feet. They identified this man for all the world to see with a sign they placed above his head as a spectacle and mockery of this silent man. The sign read, this is Jesus. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Here he is. And they shouted at him, save yourself. Come down and then we'll believe you. Just get off the cross, king. And for hours, Jesus hung there and he suffered as the people watched. For hours, people gathered around and they watched him hang there. And we're told at about three o'clock in the afternoon, he began to say something. And different translations read a little bit differently. But he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, say it with me, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Jews and Israelites had finally received, finally, after 500 years of waiting, they'd finally received their long-awaited king. And guess what? Within five days, they had mutilated him, and they had killed him. Let that sink in. But this was no surprise, actually. Because the prophet Isaiah had spoke of this moment hundreds of years prior. And so as I bring this moment to a close, this part, I want to invite everyone in this room to close your eyes where you are. And I want you to hear the words of Isaiah the prophet written hundreds of years before Jesus ever lived on this earth. I'm going to read this slowly. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 53. The prophet Isaiah wrote, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so He didn't open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away, Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Church, buried deep within those powerful words written hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked on this earth was a powerful message. It was a a message of hope. And I'm wondering if you caught it. We'll talk more in just a moment. Let's sing. Do you believe the unbelievable, church? You know, there's a reason that we mourn when we attend a funeral or when we watch a loved one breathe their last because death is permanent. Death has always been permanent. And there's no coming back from death. At least that there's not supposed to be. And yet buried within those words of suffering in Isaiah that we just read a few moments ago was a small clue of what was to come. In verse 11 of Isaiah, the prophet writes, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And I can imagine a lot of ways that readers came to understand Isaiah's words. After all, that was always something, that was always an expectation, right? That there would be life after death. That's something that all of us probably believe. And so I'm sure that they thought, of course they'll see light of life. But did they know? Did they really know? Could they have imagined precisely what those words really, really meant? And yet all throughout the gospel accounts, as we read about the life of Jesus, there are these clues that aren't really clues at all. It's a detailed description of exactly what's to come from the very lips of Jesus himself as he walked on this earth. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, he said. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous, marvelous in our eyes. And lastly, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And he wasn't talking about any building church. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his body. You see, Jesus said these words, and we often assume they were words that were overlooked in much the same way that husbands tend to miss things that their wives say that are important to them. Maybe I'm speaking from experience. I don't know. But sometimes we miss things that are obvious. These weren't overlooked. These weren't missed as much as they simply weren't believed. Because as we said, death is very, very, very permanent. The religious leaders were paying attention to every word that Jesus had said, every word that was uttered. It was how they built their case against him. It's why they put him on trial. And so as Jesus' body was placed in the tomb, those same religious people came back to Pilate a second time. And this time they had a concern. They said, sir, we remember that while this guy was still alive, the deceiver, that is, said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, you know, his disciples, they're going to come and they're going to steal the body and they're going to go and tell people that he's been raised from the dead. And the last deception is going to be worse than the first. And so Pilate agreed to do what they asked and the guard was placed at the tomb to prevent any mischief from happening. Nobody was going to come in and claim that death turned into life. But here's the thing, and we know this all too well, you can only control what you can control. And sometimes there are things in this life that are out of our control. And so as we read Matthew 28 together, I want you to think about these words. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. I'm sorry, here's what Matthew said. He said, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like whitening and he was dressed. His clothes were as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and they became like dead men. And so the angel said to the women, don't be afraid for, the, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified and he is not here. Church, say it with me. He has risen just as he said come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee and there you will see him now I have told you and so the women they hurried away from the tomb afraid imagine what you would feel like they were afraid and yet they're filled with joy and they ran and they tell his disciples and so suddenly Jesus meets them and he says Greetings. And they came to him and they clasped his feet and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. I want you to go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Friends, he has risen from the dead. And I want you to take a moment. I want, to let, I want you to let those words sink in. Let those penetrate you a little bit more than they ever have before. He has risen from the dead. I want you to fight every urge you might have to hear those words and overlook them because you've heard them so many times before. Don't do that. Hear what he's saying. Because if you looked at our Easter invite cards, if you received one this week, whatever it is, uh, you know how this story was going to end before you ever heard it. In three words, we told you everything you needed to know. He is risen. You already heard the story. 
Because Easter Sunday is the day that we gather and we celebrate a resurrected Jesus. We all know that. We all get that. But do we understand that? Do we actually grasp and internalize what those words mean? Have we let those words change us from the inside? Because they should change us. They should change us in a huge way, in a mighty way, in a big way. He is risen. He has defeated death. Let that penetrate you. Because way back in the very beginning of God's story, we're introduced to a man. His name is Adam. And we're introduced to a woman. And her name is Eve. And we're introduced to the serpent. His name is Serpent. And uh, you probably know the story well. And they're created into this perfect garden. They're created into this perfect world. A world devoid of sin. A world devoid of death. And yet through the serpent, through the accuser, the deceiver, the Satan, whatever you want to call him, they are deceived. And they are introduced, or they have sin and death introduced into the world through them. And each of these three were given consequences by God for their actions. But God saved the worst of it all for the serpent. To the serpent, he said, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so from that moment on, the rest of human history, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history was on a collision course with the resurrection because this enmity or this struggle that God is speaking of, that God spoke of, came to a head during what we call Passion Week. That for thousands of years, Satan has had his way on earth. Raise your hand if you've ever seen the fruit of Satan's work on earth. Yes, we've seen it, right? And there was war, and there was famine, and there was disease, and there was hatred, and death, and finally even death on a cross. And the offspring of the woman, the Son of God, the Messiah, he was dead. But God said that death was but a strike to the heel. For what was to follow was far more deadly still, the metaphoric crushing of the serpent's head. That something, let me just say this, one does not recover from a crushed head. Do we all agree with that? Yeah. If God was the author of life, then the serpent was the author of death. And I want to ask you this question. How does one defeat death? Any guesses? Follow Jesus. Well, follow Jesus, but you can only defeat death with life. That's the only way you defeat death. And so on that third day, as Jesus' lips began to move, and out came that first word, greetings. The power of Satan was forever defeated as death gave way to life. For the first time, think about this, a dead person had raised themselves back to life by the power of themselves. And so the serpent's head in that moment was crushed. Death was defeated and life Eternal life was made available to all of humanity. And the Apostle Paul would later write about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to read his words directly to you because I can't say it better and I can't say it shorter than Paul said it. He said, Christ has indeed been risen from the dead or been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. And he continues, he says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood 
cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. He said, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable um, must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in, help me out, victory. Say that louder for me, church. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I'm going to say those three words again. Jesus is, help me out, risen. Jesus is alive. And in him, we too have life. So if you believe that church, say amen. amen. If you believe that church, shout amen. 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 The Bible teaches that baptism is our chance to be buried with Christ and raised to a new life, just as he did. And I don't know everyone in this room. I'm grateful to have some guests and visitors with us. I hope you keep coming back. It's a blessing and an honor and a privilege that you guys came to celebrate the resurrection with us. If you've never received Jesus in your life, if you've never surrendered to, your, to Jesus in your life, if you've never been allowed to live in your life, truly live, I want to invite you to do that this morning. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what's on your heart. But if you are ready to give your life to Christ, if you're ready to celebrate the resurrection and through him to be resurrected to a new life and to live forevermore with God in community, I want to invite you to do that because God so loved you that even if it was just you, if you were the only sinner on earth, if, if billions and billions and billions of people had come and had lived this life flawlessly and there was one of us in this room who was a sinner, Jesus still would have gone to the cross for you. He, he loved you that much. He would have done it just for you. And so God invites you into relationship with him, into his, relationship with his church, and we are God's church. We are God's people gathered together to worship him, church. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And so in just a moment, we're going to sing a closing song. It's a song of celebration. But if you want prayer, if there's anything that we can do to talk with you about your faith, I want to invite you to come. I'm going to sit up here in the front row invite you to just come and chat with me. I'd love to pray with you and hear what's on your heart, but I want you to have life. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Amen. And that's what the resurrection is all about. He defeated death so that we could too. And let's praise his holy name. He is risen.